Welcome to today's Over the Edge Devotion. Conflict and Comfort For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, and of the Father, and of Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 Although he was in prison, the apostle was constantly at work for his master, and not least of all at the work of prayer. If ever the words, Orari est laborari, to pray is to labor, were true, they were true of St. Paul. For to him to pray was to work with all his might, as we shall see from a study of another of the prayers offered in his Roman prison. 1. What prayer means. Prayer is described as a conflict. We have a similar expression used of the prayers of Epaphras in the words, laboring fervently, Colossians chapter 4, verse 12. The same word conflict is associated with faith, the good fight of faith, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, and with the good fight of the apostle's entire life, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. Prayer regarded as a conflict includes these two ideas of toil and strife. The toil of prayer shows us the work involved in it. Sometimes we hear the expression, if you can do nothing else, you can pray, as though prayer were the easiest of all things. As a simple fact, it is the hardest. No man knows what prayer means unless he knows what it is to labor in prayer. The strife involved in prayer implies opposition, the opposing force of one who wishes above all things to check and thwart our prayers. We discern something of this opposition in the well-known words, We wrestle, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. And the words of the hymn are as true as they are familiar. As Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. The apostle knew by spiritual experience that to pray was to rouse up against himself a mighty opposition. And it was this force that made his prayer such a great conflict. No believer should be surprised at his prayers being hindered. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 7. It is evidently one of Satan's main objects to get the Christian to restrain prayer. The Christian man or the Christian church that continues instant in prayer may rest assured of malignant opposition from the hosts of spiritual wickedness in high places. On the other hand, we may be sure that Satan scarcely troubles himself about the believer or congregation whose private, family, and public praying is neglected or thought little of. Prayer is, therefore, a great conflict. It is not solicitude only, but a struggle, not merely anxiety, but activity. As Bishop Moule says, prayer is never meant to be indolently easy, however simple and reliant it may be. It is meant to be an infinitely important transaction between man and God, and therefore very often, when subjects and circumstances call for it, it has to be viewed as a working involving labor, persistency, conflict, if it would be prayer indeed. 
Colossian Studies, page 124. The bishop goes on to quote a familiar incident which illustrates this great truth. A visitor knocked betimes one morning at the door of a good man, a saint of the noblest Puritan type, and that was a fine type indeed. He called as a friend to consult a friend, sure of his welcome. But he was kept waiting long. At last a servant came to explain the delay. My master has been at prayer, and this morning he has been long in getting access. The practical question for us is whether this is our idea of prayer, or whether we are merely playing at prayer and not regarding it with true seriousness. If we know what it is to have great conflict in prayer, happy are we. If we do not, we may well ask God to search our hearts and change our minds about prayer. Prayer is characterized by unselfishness. The conflict of the apostle was not self-centered. It was on behalf of others. Great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea. This is the essence of prayer, intercession on behalf of others. If our seasons of prayer are largely taken up with prayers for our own needs, however genuine, we are failing at a crucial point. But if our time is mainly taken up with prayers for others, we shall soon find that our own blessings begin to abound. There is that scattereth and yet increaseth. Prayer also implies sympathy. The apostle was praying for people whom he had never seen and probably never would see. This is not easy, indeed, is very difficult, but it is a real test of spirituality. Out of sight, out of mind. We are tempted to limit our prayers to friends whom we know, causes in which we are interested, subjects spiritually near and akin to us. Not so the apostle, whose heart went out to the whole church of God in every place where he knew through friends that little bodies of Christians were to be found. His sympathy was at once quick, wide, and deep, and it was one of the supreme tests of true spirituality to have a sympathy possessed of all these three characteristics. Our sympathy may be quick and yet narrow, or wide but not deep, or even deep and not wide. But to be at once quick, wide, and deep in sympathy is to be a true follower of Christ. As we ponder these things, conflict, unselfishness, sympathy, do not our hearts condemn us? Instead of conflict, how easy-going have been our prayers. Instead of unselfish, how self-centered. Instead of sympathetic, how contracted. Thus the Apostle searches and tests us as we dwell on his wonderful life of prayer. 2. What Prayer Brings What are the objects for which the Apostle prayed so earnestly on behalf of these unknown Christians? What were the precise gifts that he sought for them from God? This is no unnecessary question, for the same gifts will surely be suitable to us. He asked for spiritual strength, that their hearts might be comforted. St. Paul always went to the very center and core of things, and so we find him constantly praying with reference to the hearts of these Colossian Christians. Since, as we have seen, the heart in Scripture is the center of our moral and spiritual being. If the heart is right, all will be right, for out of it are the issues of life, 
he prays that their hearts might be comforted, that is, in the full sense of the word, encouraged, exhorted, strengthened. Comfort includes the three elements of strength, courage, and consolation. We must be strong, brave, and cheery. This is the full meaning of the term comforter as applied to the Holy Spirit. He is the one who gives strength, courage, and consolation. This, too, is the true meaning of the familiar phrase of the English prayer book, comfortable words, words that minister strength, fortitude, and cheer. The fact that this thought of hearts comforted was often in the mind and on the lips of the apostle shows the importance he attached to it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 22. With hearts made strong, courageous, and cheerful, Christians can face anything, while with hearts that remain weak, fearful, and sad, the Christian life is a prey to all the temptations of the evil one. It is exactly similar with a church or a congregation of Christians, for one of the supreme needs in any community is comforted hearts, the centers of life made strong, courageous, and happy. Then it is that churches live, grow, extend, and witness for Christ in the demonstration of the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. He asked for spiritual unity, being knit together in love, or, quite literally, having been compacted in love. He prayed that these Christians might be kept together, knit together, joined together in a spirit of love. Solitary Christians are always weak Christians, for unison is strength. If Christians are not knit together, the cause of Christ must necessarily suffer. For through the severances caused by division, the enemy will keep thrusting his darts. That is why the Apostle everywhere urges them, earnestly to strive to keep the unity of the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 3 One of the greatest powers that Satan wields today is due to the disunion among the people of God. It is true of the Christian home, congregation, and denomination. The wedge of discord is one of the enemy's most powerful weapons. On the other hand, where the brethren dwell together in unity, the Lord commands his blessing. In almost every epistle, the apostle emphasizes unity, and we can readily understand the reason. This unity is only possible in love. It is the love of God to us that unites us to him, and it is the love of God in us that unites us to our brethren. There is no power like love to bind Christians together. We may not see eye to eye on all aspects of truth. We may not all use the same methods of worship and service, but if we love one another, God dwells in us and among us and adds his own seal of blessing to the work done for him. Let every Christian be fully assured that in so far as he is striving, praying, and laboring for the union of God's people in love, he will be doing one of the most powerful and blessed pieces of work for his master, and one of the greatest possible pieces of disservice to the kingdom of Satan. Contrarywise, the Christian man or Christian church that stands out for separateness and exclusiveness is one of the best allies of Satan, and one of the most effective workers for the kingdom of darkness. 
he asks for spiritual certitude. Unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding. Wealth is a favorite metaphor of St. Paul, and he uses it to denote the fullness and abundance of the Christian life as conceived by him. Mark how he piles phrase upon phrase, understanding, fullness of understanding, and then wealth of fullness of understanding. To the apostle, the mind was one of the essential powers and principles of the Christian life. So far from thinking according to a modern fashion, that the less one uses the mind, the better Christian one is, St. Paul, following his master, ever emphasized the duty and glory of loving God with all the mind. This wealth of the fullness of understanding means an abundance of conviction, both intellectual and moral, that Christianity is what it claims to be, and that the Christian life is the perfect satisfaction of all the different parts of a man's nature. He prays that they may rise to the whole wealth of the full exercise of their intelligence, Mool. Just as we find elsewhere the fullness of faith, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 22, the fullness of hope, Hebrews chapter 6 verse 11, and much fullness, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 5. So here the apostle desires them to enjoy to the full the intelligent grasping of assurance of Christian truth which was theirs in Christ. In the same spirit Luke writes to Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. A firm conviction of the understanding is one of the greatest needs, as it is also one of the greatest blessings, of the Christian life. If a Christian cannot say, I know, I am persuaded, he is lacking in one of the prime essentials of a vigorous experience. Let us ponder, then, this remarkable phrase, the whole wealth of the fullness of intelligence, and see in it one of the absolute necessities of daily experience. But how does it come? It is the result of the foregoing comfort and love. Hearts made strong mean minds fully assured. Hearts full of love mean intellects full of knowledge and conviction. Let no one say that love is blind. On the contrary, it is love that sees and knows. It was the apostle of love who was the first with spiritual insight to say, It is the Lord, on that memorable early morning on the Lake of Galilee. It is the Christian with a heart strong and full of love who will have the wealth of the fullness of intelligence. The same is true of a church, for when it is strong and united in love, there will come such an influence of conviction and certitude that the world will be impressed by the demonstration of the truth of the Christian gospel. He asked for spiritual knowledge. To the full knowledge of the mystery of God and the Father, even Christ. Not as authorized version. Here, again, we have a favorite word of these epistles, full knowledge, that is, ripe, mature experience, and it means the experience of all that is summed up in the one word, Christ. In view of the dangerous errors, then rife and increasing, of a special knowledge confined only to a few, to an intellectual aristocracy, the Apostle lays stress upon the possibility of every Christian becoming acquainted in personal experience with all the knowledge of God that is stored up in Christ. 
he declares Christ as the image of God, chapter 1, verse 15, as the head of the church, chapter 1, verse 18, as the one in whom all fullness dwells, chapter 1, verse 19, as the Redeemer from sin, chapter 1, verse 20, as the hope of glory, chapter 1, verse 27, as the one in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, chapter 2, verse 3. There is no mistiness here, no vagueness, no hesitation, no limitation, but a full, free, open opportunity for all believers to become acquainted with Christ in his divine fullness. This is the crowning point of the Apostle's Prayer, for in the full knowledge of Christ everything else is included. This knowledge, at once intellectual, moral, and spiritual, is the safeguard from all error, the secret of all progress, and the guarantee of all blessing. Let this prayer, then, be our constant and careful study. We shall find in it much to rebuke the shallowness, the selfishness, the dullness, and the sluggishness of our prayers, and we shall also find in it a model of instruction and the inspiration of all true petition and intercession. The Christian who learns from the prayers of the Apostle will learn some of the deepest secrets of the Christian life. Thank you for listening to our daily devotion. May God continue to guide you each day in your daily life.